Praise the Lord and good evening. Welcome to our Bible study series once again uh, in the book of Acts. We are studying all 28 chapters of the book of Acts, such a powerful and inspiring portion of the New Testament. I, I think it's absolutely critical for every believer to read and study this portion of Scripture because it helps to form our whole view of where the church came from, what the church looks like, what is the church supposed to be doing, and so many other things we're looking at as we move along. Uh, we are presently in part six of what will ultimately be a 12-part series. All of the notes, all of the Recordings for these are available free for anyone that's interested. Uh, there are a variety of ways that people can uh, benefit from these studies, uh, both live on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on the telephone or on the Internet, and also if you can't make it 7.30 Wednesdays, you can always come back later and access the notes and or recordings. Uh, those are available at our website, new-life-ministries.org. They're also available through podcast if you want to get that on your smartphone. And those that like to listen on the Internet, it's mixlr.com. And our broadcast name is New Life Ministries. And all of the studies are also recorded and stored there, so you can also access them at any time. We are in part six, and if you are following along in the notes, we've come to page 97, and this is such a powerful and an important segment in the book of Acts where we are right now. We, of course, are looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, probably better known as Paul the Apostle, and such an amazing uh, account of how the Lord brought this man to salvation, revealed his will to him, and how God used this man in such a singular way. Arguably the greatest apostle uh, who ever lived, wrote over half of the New Testament, and yet, as we began to see last week, was a fierce opponent of the Christians, a, an, a persecutor, um, possibly, we can't specifically prove this, but certainly from his own testimony, he was party to the murder of Christians in the early church. And how strange are the ways of God to choose uh, a murderer, a persecutor, an opponent of the church to become a champion of the church and one chosen to write much of what we study uh, in our churches, in our daily Bible studies, etc. With all that being said, let me recap. We're in Acts chapter 9 where we read about Paul's meeting with Jesus on his way to Damascus, and we talked about this a lot last time, I don't want to take too much time reviewing, but he was on his way to Damascus with arrest warrants for Christians, and we saw that twice later in Paul's life, he would give his own personal account of what happened here in Acts 9, of course, we're reading Luke's account of what happened, but it's interesting to compare it with Paul's own testimony later on, because he adds some other details that perhaps Luke didn't want to add, we're not sure why, but um, Paul later on would make it very clear he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, to arrest them, throw them into prison, and punish them. And in several places, he actually says, I put many of the saints in prison, 
and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And Acts 9, it does say that, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Murderous threats. So, these were not empty threats by any means. He was uh, threatening to kill the Christians. He was dragging them off to prison. And it would seem that he was certainly involved in the death of a number of Christians in the early church. So, we can say without any hesitation that by this point in time, many others have joined Stephen with the distinguished honor of being martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ. Many Christians had given up their very lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 22, when Paul is telling the story, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Now, you can read that several ways, whether he uh, had their blood literally on his hands or not, we cannot definitively say. But again, he was a madman, chasing down the Christians, hunting them, arresting them, throwing them into prison, and he seemed to be on uh, this hell-bent mission to round up all the Christians, to wipe them out and extinguish this thing called the way. And en route to Damascus, this is where he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw last time that in this confrontation, he is interrogated by the Lord. He falls to the ground, he sees a bright light, which actually, we're going to talk more about this tonight, the brilliance of the light that he saw blinded him. He would remain blind for three days and three nights from the, the flash of glory that he saw as he met Jesus Christ face to face. And I pointed this out last time, but I, I want to emphasize this again. Sadly, in a lot of modern Christian circles, salvation has been re reduced to sort of a step-by-step a, a -step human process, you know, quote this after me, say this, pray this, do that, and you'll be saved. It, it isn't like that. Salvation is meeting Jesus Christ. And until you and I meet Him and have an encounter with Him, it's all just words. We can repeat prayers and repeat this, that, and the other and still not be changed. This was a life-changing encounter that Paul had on the road to Damascus. He would never be the same Saul of Tarsus chasing down the Christians, persecuting the church. His whole life was about to be radically transformed. And so, when he has this encounter with Jesus, Jesus asks him a question. Why are you persecuting me? And of course, Paul was the one who asked, Who are you, Lord? Well, he got an answer. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Saul met Jesus. Saul is face to face with Jesus now. And he's actually hearing him and talking to him. What an amazing story this is. And we want to continue right on in the story from page 97 in the notes and verse 6 of Acts 9 where this is what Paul is told. Now get up 
and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. How things can change in an instant, especially when you're face to face with the living God. Just moments earlier, this guy was arrogantly charging toward Damascus with arrest warrants in his hand and, you know, in full control, in full power, with the authority of the high priests in Jerusalem, and he's going to round up the Christians, and he's the one in charge. All of a sudden, the tables have turned completely. He's on the ground asking, Who are you, Lord? And now, the Lord is telling Saul what to do. He's now taking his orders from the Lord Jesus, and that would be the case for the rest of his life. Get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. The Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. God knew what he was going to do with this man Saul. All along, God knew what his plan was. He let him go only so far, but he did let him go to this point of creating havoc in the early church, scattering the disciples everywhere, and yes, even being responsible in some way for the death of many Christians. God let him go just so far, and then it all comes to a stop right here. And I started to make this point last week, but I want to emphasize this again. At this point in time, God has Paul's undivided attention. He's on the ground, he's asking, Who are you, Lord? And he's being told, I have instructions for you. Now, Jesus could have very easily spelled out right then and there, Okay, Saul, I have destined to make you an apostle in this church that you've called the way. And here's what you're going to do. A, B, C, D. That's not what God did. God said, you go into the city, and I'll give you some more information when you get there. You will be told what you must do. Now, one of the things Saul would be told is he was going to hear the voice of God. He was going to see the Lord, and the Lord was going to speak to this man. However, and this is very, very critical to understand, God chose to make him sit and wait to receive further instructions, not directly from the mouth of God, but one from one of the very disciples in Damascus that he likely had an arrest warrant for. <laughs> How strange are the ways of God. One of the disciples in Damascus would be the one who would come to Saul and tell him what he needed to do. We'll learn very quickly that disciple's name was Ananias. And although God's intention was to raise up Saul, to become an apostle, to hear his voice, to know him, this is a lesson very important for all of us to learn. And I think this was the lesson God was teaching Saul right here from the very beginning. Yes, you're going to be a very special instrument in my hand. You will hear my voice. You will know me. You will declare my word. You will write half of my New Testament. But in my kingdom and in my church... There are no lone rangers. What do I mean by that? There are no individuals who have a direct hotline with God and they don't need anyone else in the church. That is false and extremely dangerous. And so from the beginning, 
God is teaching Saul, you're going to have to depend on the rest of the body. You're going to have to depend on other members of the church. Because sometimes I may speak directly to you, other times I may speak to you through a prophet or through another disciple. And really, there's no difference. It'll be me speaking to you. So learn to get connected to the other members in the body. Learn to submit to the other members of the body, especially when I put a word in their mouth for you. So this is a very important instruction that God is giving to Saul. Get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. God could send an angel, God could appear to him in a vision, but God is going to send a disciple named Ananias to tell him what to do. Now, before we get to that, let's cover a few other things. In verse 7, it says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. So there were others with Saul in his company traveling to Damascus. They stood there speechless. They heard the sound. They did not see anyone. And we will learn later, although they heard the sound, they didn't actually hear the words that that voice was speaking to Saul. Only Saul could understand the words. They heard the sound. Now, the Amplified Bible says, the men who were accompanying him were unable to speak for terror. (laughs) They were unable to speak for terror. And it's... I think it's important to think about this a bit, that Saul was not all alone. If he were all alone, he could have made up this whole story. But God made sure there were witnesses there for this very dramatic event, so that it wasn't just Paul telling this story of being knocked to the ground and seeing a bright light and hearing voices. God made sure there were witnesses with him. And putting together Luke's account here in Acts 9 and Paul's two accounts in Acts 22 and Acts 26, which we read last time, there are some important details that we can put together. Number one, all of those in Saul's company, all of these companions that were with him, They heard the sound, but they did not understand what the voice was saying to Saul. They heard the sound. Secondly, all of the companions saw this brilliant light. That's very clear from Paul's later testimony. They all saw the light, they all heard a sound, and it obviously had a profound effect on them. They were speechless. I like the Amplified. They were unable to speak for terror. They were terrified. This was a dramatic event that came out of nowhere. Third thing we know, all of Saul's traveling companions fell to the ground. We learn that in Acts 26. It wasn't just Saul. All of them fell to the ground. I mean, just gripped with terror. And... So, there were a number of witnesses to this event. But here's something else maybe you've never thought about. These companions who were with Paul, why were they with him? They were all on one mission. To go to Damascus, arrest the Christians, and drag them back to Jerusalem to put in prison, and maybe even to put to death. They were all on that same mission to persecute the Christians in Damascus. 
but there's no indication in any of the accounts given here in Acts that any of the others in that company got converted, which is amazing. They were all struck to the ground. They all saw the bright light. They all heard the sound of Christ's voice, even though they couldn't discern the words that he was speaking. But they all were gripped with fear and terror as they lay on the ground there. But at least as far as we know, none of the others in this company came to salvation. What an amazing thing. We don't know uh, if Paul was able to testify to any of them after this whole experience. The scriptures are silent on it, so we can only speculate. But the point I want to make is it's not unusual for people to experience the supernatural and still not get saved. A lot of times we think, oh, if so-and-so could just see an angel or hear a voice from heaven or have some kind of a, an encounter with the supernatural, then they would turn to Christ. No, not necessarily. Many people in the days of Jesus saw miracles, signs, and wonders, and he said, woe to you. You've seen so many miracles, and yet you won't repent. So, we don't know what happened to all the rest in Saul's company, but it was a very dramatic event. Verse 9 tells us, For three days Saul was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, Another thing we learned, uh, he had to be helped into the city. Remember, the instructions were, get up, go into the city, uh, you will be told what you must do. Well, uh, he was blind. He had to be helped. It says they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And we're about to learn that he's in the house of one named Judas, not to be confused with Judas of uh, Judas Iscariot, of course, who's already dead. Another Judas, who lived on a street called Straight Street. Now, for three days, he's there, not eating, not drinking, blinded by this vision from heaven. It may be a coincidence, but something tells me it's not, that this is for three days. And three days is, of course, very significant in the scriptures. Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, which was a foreshadowing of Jesus spending three days and three nights in the grave. But, in Matthew, uh, when Jesus talks about Jonah's three days in the belly of the great fish, he describes it, and I'm quoting, three days in the belly of hell. Three days in the belly of hell. Which, again, is a type of Christ spending three days and three nights in the grave. Here again, we can only speculate, this is not, thus saith the Lord, but just looking at the scriptures and using a little bit of imagination, it's not hard for me to imagine that these were three days spent in hell for Paul. He's in total darkness, He's just met the Lord Jesus, who told him, you've been persecuting me. And he's sitting there waiting for instructions. He doesn't know what he's going to be told next. I mean, after three days and three nights, an angel may appear to him and said, you're done, Saul, I'm taking your life. He must have been in terror, sitting there in darkness, and... He certainly had a lot of time to think 
and to reflect. And again, I'm only speculating, but something tells me he kept having visions of Stephen's death and the other Christians whom he had arrested and maybe even some other Christians that he saw being put to death. He may have had nightmares about all those things. No doubt he had time to think about all of his sins as the Holy Spirit was bringing them back to his mind. And so, three days literally in darkness, with God's terror resting upon him as he's waiting for instructions, as he's waiting to find out what is his destiny, what's going to happen to him. There's no indication yet that he is truly uh, saved, that he truly knows and understands what all this is about yet. Now, in verses 10 to 12, this is where we move into the next segment. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The, the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, we learn another detail here. Saul, in this three-day period of time of blindness, fasting, not even drinking anything, he's praying. I would think so. I would think so. He is praying. He's earnestly praying. And as he's praying, the Lord reveals something to him. He has a vision. And in this vision, he actually sees Ananias. He sees him coming to the house, placing his hands on him, and his sight being restored. So, get this picture. Here's Ananias, one of the disciples in Damascus, for whom Saul is coming to arrest, maybe even put to death. God appears to Ananias in a vision, says, I got a job for you today. Go to such and such a house. Here's the address. It's Judas's house on Straight Street. And ask for Saul of Tarsus. He's been praying. He already knows you're coming. I've got this one all planned out. I like it when God does stuff. You know... Man can plan things, and sometimes his plans are pretty clever. But let me tell you something. When God has something planned, it is exquisite. It is perfect. It is beautiful. The timing, the placement of people and events is all perfectly orchestrated. God is all over this one. Now, up until now, we've never even heard of this Ananias. Uh, we don't know much about him. We'll learn a few things about him. He certainly wasn't any great apostle. Uh, he's not called a prophet or a pastor or an elder. Uh, he's a disciple, just an ordinary disciple like you and me. He's there in Damascus, obviously a faithful disciple, and one to whom God could speak and call, and he was faithful to do what the Lord told, told him, although he had a little bit of a problem with the assignment. As anyone who had heard of this man Saul would have had. But the point I want to make, <coughs> God likes to use simple unknown people. Sure, he'll use the 
T.D. Jakes or the Billy Grahams, but he'll also use the Bill or the Bob or the Sue or the Jose that nobody's ever heard of. That's what's so beautiful about God and the Gospel. He likes to use people, ordinary, simple people. And God chose to use a simple, regular guy like Ananias, think about this, to pray for Paul, the future apostle of the church. Man, can you imagine what a, what a distinction that was? You're the man God chose to go lay hands on this persecutor of the church who was about to become the champion of the church and the author of over half the New Testament. God chose this simple little disciple, Ananias, to go pray for Saul's healing, to baptize him in water, and to pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit. Thank God, when the Lord called Ananias, he said, yes. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. Yes, Lord, he answered. He was his Lord, and therefore whatever God was telling him, his answer would be yes. Although, we see in verses 13 and 14, he was human. He had a question here. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. <clears throat> now that's interesting. News had already reached Damascus that Saul was on his way, and that he had these arrest warrants in hand. He's coming here with authority from the chief priests in Jerusalem to arrest all who call on your name. Well, guess what? That includes Ananias. Ananias knows this guy's coming to arrest him. And now the Lord is speaking to him in a vision to go to the house where he is staying. Um, I got some questions about this one, Lord. I have heard many reports about this Saul of Tarsus. Saul, by this time, had a reputation known far and wide. He is the persecutor of the church. He's on his way here to lock up some more Christians, just like he's been doing in other places. And I can only imagine all of the believers in Damascus are trembling with fear, hearing that this guy is on his way there. They know. They've heard about Stephen. They've heard about the other martyrs that have given up their lives for the sake of Christ. They've heard about all the Christians being dragged into jail by Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus. And they're sitting there like defenseless lambs, waiting for the wolf to come and eat them. But, as we've been mentioning, God is sovereign. Putting that in simple, non-theological terms, God is in control. God is in control of Saul. God is in control of Hitler. God is in control of Nebuchadnezzar. God is in control. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants. He has absolute power and authority. And he can arrest the Saul of Tarsus in his tracks when he wants to. And God has different ways of answering prayer and delivering his people out of trouble. No doubt, the Christians in Damascus were praying, Oh God, have mercy on us! This man Saul of Tarsus is coming here with arrest warrants. He's going to drag us all into prison, and probably 
Many of us are going to die. Lord, help us. Lord, have mercy. Little did they know God was going to answer their prayer in a strange way. He was going to save Saul the persecutor. He was going to change his heart. This Saul of Tarsus is now about to get converted and become one of them. God can do anything. Don't rule God out in your situation. Don't rule God out in our culture, in the politics, in what's going on in the country or in the world. God can do anything. God can grab the leader of ISIS and save him tonight. Fill him with the Holy Spirit and make him an apostle. God can do anything. But, The Lord said to Ananias in verse 15, Go! (laughs) He didn't give a big long explanation. Just go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much He must suffer for my name. Simply, God gives Ananias a one-word answer. Go. Lord, I've heard many things about this Saul of Tarsus. He's come here with arrest warrants. He's going to drag all of us in prison. Good. Go. This man is my chosen instrument. I'm in charge here. I know what I'm doing. I have a plan for him. Just go. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, the people of Israel, and I will also show him how much he must suffer for my name. I want to highlight this again. God revealed this to Ananias, not to Saul. God could have given a vision to Saul, God could have spoken directly to Saul the way he's speaking to Ananias now, but he didn't. God chose to reveal these things to Ananias, and Ananias is now going to be the messenger delivering God's word to Saul. Saul must learn this lesson. Sometimes he'll hear directly from heaven, other times he'll hear through the lips of a man. God revealed it to Ananias not Saul. He gives Ananias the basic outline of Saul's future life and ministry. He's going to carry his name primarily to the Gentiles, although he will also testify before the people of Israel, and he's going to suffer a lot. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul's commission would be primarily apostle to the Gentiles. He would even stand, literally, this is going to be fulfilled in the book of Acts, before kings and testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would also preach to his fellow Israelites, and it's from the Israelites that he would particularly suffer the most persecution. Now, Let's break this down. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. My chosen instrument. Not exactly the kind of person you and I would have likely chosen to be an apostle. He's an enemy of the church. He's got blood on his hands. He's a murderer of Christians. And yet, God says, I've chosen him. He's my chosen instrument. And we're going to discuss this later on in the book of Acts. I'm going to wait till we get there to try to delve into a very powerful doctrine that is all over the scriptures. It's known as the doctrine of election. And for now, we'll keep it simple. Election means 
You can choose things. And God, who is sovereign, He makes His own choices. He chooses people. He chooses to do things. He doesn't need your permission or mine. He doesn't take counsel from anyone. He doesn't have to give an account to anyone. God is God alone. And He does what He chooses. The Bible actually says He sits on His throne in heaven and He does as He pleases. And He doesn't need permission from anyone. So, Nobody counseled God on this one, and nobody can criticize God on this one. He chose Saul of Tarsus. We're not sure why. That's part of the mystery of God. That's the mystery of election. God chooses people, and He does it His own way for His own reasons. But make no mistake, this is going to be God's chosen instrument. Chosen specifically, note these words, to carry my name. To carry my name. It's a strange expression. You don't find it uh, commonly used in the New Testament. But this is Paul's calling. I'm calling this man to carry my name. Wherever Paul would go, He would carry something. He would carry with him the name of Jesus. And you know, by extension, that calling has been placed on your life and mine. Now, you may not be called to be an apostle, a prophet, a pastor, or an elder, but we're all called to carry the name of Jesus. And whatever your vocation in life is, you might be an auto mechanic, um, a school teacher, a trash collector, an artist, a musician. There are many vocations, and God gifts us. He gives us gifts, even for those earthly vocations. And let me just insert here, whatever you're good at, whatever you're skilled at, you're probably also very passionate about. Go for it. Do what you're good at. Do what you're skilled at. Do what you're passionate about. Be the best accountant, the best mechanic, the best salesman, the best business owner, or whatever. And whatever you're skilled at, get even more skill. Hone that skill. Practice what you're good at. Become the best in your field. But don't get that confused with this calling. Whether you're called as a mechanic, a school teacher, a musician, a president, or whatever, the most important thing for you is not just to do your job. It's to carry the name of Jesus with you onto that job. Now, I know that's not politically correct. We're not supposed to talk about Jesus in the workplace. We're not supposed to mention the name of Jesus on the subway or on the bus. But we've seen this over and over in the book of Acts. We must obey God rather than men. They could not keep quiet about the Lord Jesus Christ, nor should we. And we need to cut through all this political correctness, and make sure we're doing what God called us to do. Carry the name of Jesus. Carry it to your job. Carry it into your school. Carry it to your classroom. Carry it out on the street in your neighborhood to your neighbors. God help us not to be ashamed of the name of Jesus, because one day and one day soon... Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that name. And they're also going to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even the demons and all those that are sentenced to an eternity in hell, they will have to confess Jesus 
is Lord. They will have to speak the name of Jesus. And I can only imagine the torment that echoes throughout the chambers of hell every time the name of Jesus is spoken. But spoken it must be. So why are we silent? Let's carry the name of Jesus with you. And you know, when you're asked to pray in public or pray at a restaurant, you know, it's not one of these generic prayers, Oh God, bless us, Amen. No, God bless us in the name of Jesus, Amen. We pray in the name of Jesus. We do things in the name of Jesus. We carry the name of Jesus with us. And Jesus said, Oh, well, if you're ashamed of my name in public here, I'll be ashamed of your name when I'm standing before my Father. So let's not be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Let's carry his name with us. The next thing we heard here, I'm going to show Saul the great things he must suffer for my name. Suffer for my name. <clears throat> a lot of Christians had suffered at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. He had been directly responsible for inflicting great pain and suffering on many of Christ's followers. But now the tables have turned. Saul would now be on the receiving end of that persecution. And I think what made it even more painful for him, we pointed this out earlier, most of his suffering would come not directly from the hands of Gentiles, but through the Jewish people. They would incite, <clears throat> excuse me, they would incite the crowds of Gentiles, sometimes they would stir up the Gentiles to persecute Paul, but most of the time the persecution was really stemming from the Jewish people. And if you have any doubt in your mind about the kinds of things that this man, Saul, was going to suffer for Jesus, part of his resume is listed for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, these verses are not found in your notes, but I'd like to read them because this gives us a little bit of an insight into some of the things that Paul, the Apostle, would be suffering for the name of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and onwards, he says, Are they the servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's quite a resume there. And the one that I've been looking at more closely as I've gone further ahead in the book of Acts and actually studied some of these events that we'll eventually, eventually be looking at, the beatings, the stonings, the persecution that Paul 
had to endure. He says here, I have been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. Exposed to death. There's one instance that we're going to look at when we get there where he was stoned. It's not real clear from the scriptures, although many scholars believe this, and I happen to concur with them. He was stoned to death, and he was dragged out of the city as a dead man. They thought he was dead, and the disciples gathered around him. It doesn't specifically say what happened, but the next thing we know, he's getting up and going back into the city. So, obviously, something supernatural happened. It doesn't say they prayed for him to be raised from death to life, although it seems quite possibly something like that may have happened. In any event, this was told to Ananias. This man is my chosen instrument. He'll carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, we want to finish up this section in just a few more minutes. Continuing on, verses 17 and 18 of Acts 9. Then Ananias went. Praise God for those words. Can you imagine if Ananias had said, you know what? I'm not obeying this voice that I heard. It might be the devil. I'm going to stay here and think about this some more. He would have missed this great opportunity to be a part of what God was doing to raise this man Saul up to be the greatest apostle who ever lived. But thankfully, it says, Then Ananias went. He was an obedient, faithful disciple. He went to the house. He was given the address by the Holy Spirit. Go to Straight Street. Go to Judas's house. He went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. This is amazing. I love this. First of all, Ananias enters into the house, places his hands right on Saul, and says these words, Brother Saul. Wait a minute. This is Saul, the enemy of the church. This is Saul, the persecutor. Why are you calling him brother? This wasn't just because he was a brother Israelite, or a brother Jew. This is Ananias acknowledging Saul has been welcomed into the family of God now. He's a brother in Christ. Something has happened, and Ananias has discerned that. So he calls him Brother Saul. How gracious of Ananias to acknowledge him with that greeting. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you, he knows all about that, on the road, as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again. He's been blind for three days. That's about to change. <clears throat> if you go back and look at the interaction between Christ and Ananias, the only thing 
that Ananias was told to do was lay his hands on Saul to restore his sight. That's all he was told to do. Go. This man is a chosen instrument. You go. He's waiting. He's praying. Uh, Place your hands on him, and he'll receive his sight. Well, Ananias adds some other things here. Yes, he laid his hands on him to have his sight restored. Where does he get this business of laying his hands on him to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And who told him, after all that was done, to baptize Saul? Well, you won't find any direct reference to those things in the scriptures, but I don't think they're necessary. Ananias knew the gospel. He knew that from the day of Pentecost, this is the gospel. Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have to be told that. It was implicitly understood by any disciple. That is the gospel. Get them to repent. Get them to believe in Jesus. Get them into the water for baptism and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. That is salvation. That is the gospel. And so he didn't have to be directly told to do those things. Ananias would have known to lay hands on him for his sight to be restored, pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit, and find some water and get him baptized, because now he's brother Saul. He's a believer. It says in verse 18, when he laid hands on him, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. Something like scales. Now, we learn from the three accounts that the, the blazing glory, the brightness of the light, like the sun, we're told, it, it must have actually burned the cornea of Paul's eyes. It actually burned his eyes. He was blinded by the brightness of the light that he saw. Something like scales, like scabs or scar tissue, had to be removed from the surface of his eyes in order for him to see. It seems that the very brightness of Christ's glory had literally burned his eyes, and he needed healing to be able to see again. But now, not only is his physical vision restored, so he's going to start seeing spiritually. Let me finish with one last little bit of scripture, and this will complete our study for tonight. Back to Acts 22, where Paul is giving his own version of this whole experience. In Acts 22, we want to read from 12 to 16. This is his own account now of what happens when Ananias comes to the house. Verse 12, A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law, and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, here's some new details that are not given by Luke, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Slightly different words, but Paul, you're a chosen instrument. The God of our fathers has chosen you specifically to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. 
you will be his witness to all men. Notice again, Ananias is telling Saul, a.k.a. Paul the Apostle, what he's going to do. How humbling. Saul waiting for these instructions from this disciple named Ananias. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. He was saved, healed, water baptized, and baptized with the Holy Spirit, all in the same afternoon. What an amazing day this was for Saul the Apostle, soon to be known as Paul. (laughs) What a great relief this would have been, not only to Ananias, but to all the other Christians in Damascus. This ended the raid on the Christians, the raid to arrest them and drag them all back to Jerusalem, but not only does it end the raid, something very big has just happened. God is preparing a champion to fight for the cause of Christ, to fight for these very disciples and for many, many other churches that he would be establishing and carrying the name of Jesus to many, many places far and wide. Next time we'll continue with one last section in Acts 9 concerning uh, Paul's brief ministry there and how God began to prepare the way for Saul, who is about to take center stage in most of the remaining chapters in the book of Acts. We'll return to Peter one final time in Acts chapter 10, where it's Peter who takes the gospel to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. But now, more and more, our attention is being focused on this man, Saul of Tarsus, who will soon be Paul the Apostle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for these encouraging words, for the amazing testimony of Saul's conversion. And God, it helps all of us to be reminded, you can do anything. You can change anybody. You can take the worst enemy of the church. You can take murderers of Christians and change them in an instant into a brother or a sister in Christ, into a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, or yes, even the greatest apostle who ever lived. And God, we hear of great persecution in the world today, fierce and vile hatred that fills the hearts and minds of people who behead Christians, who don't even uh, think twice about murdering, slaughtering children for their faith in Christ. But God, let us not forget, in one instant, you can appear to them in a vision, in a dream, you can save them, baptize them with the Holy Spirit, and send them right back to the same persecutors, preaching the gospel with power. Lord, you can do anything. You are the sovereign Lord. And we thank you that in these last days, you will raise up some Saul's of Tarsus. You'll raise up some mighty apostles, prophets, preachers, teachers, elders, evangelists. You'll raise up men and women that will be used mightily by God to preach the gospel in these days that we have 
remaining. Lord, we thank you for the simple Ananiases that you can use for great things. Help us to listen to your voice, to obey your commands, to be ready and available and willing when you wish to use us, O God. You like to use simple people, little people, unknown people. You might even have great plans for somebody listening tonight to this Bible study. Lord, help us to be willing and obedient and to know that it's not about us. It's about walking into the plans that you've already formed, walking into situations that you've pre-planned, hearts that you've already prepared to receive the Word and to receive the ministry of your Holy Spirit. God, we surrender to you tonight. We pray that you would use each and every one of us according to your perfect will. You have works. You have things planned for us ahead of time. Help us to fulfill all that you have planned for each and every one of us. Whatever you've chosen us for, you've also equipped us with by your grace and by your power. Help us to be ready, willing, and obedient for all of those things that in the end we can hear you, <clears throat> hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, let us remember the testimony of Ananias. He was a, a disciple who did well. He was commended for being a faithful disciple. And surely he will hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. What an honor that you chose him of all the disciples in Damascus to go to the house, lay hands on Saul, pray for his healing, pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit, and yes, even baptize him in water. Lord, use us. We surrender to you tonight. We pray that your name would be exalted and glorified through each and every one of us. Continue to extend and expand your kingdom as we carry the name of Jesus, as we unashamedly share the simple yet powerful good news of